You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I'm talking to David Barbie and Wayne Barnett today about their work on the Amazon series, The Boys. The Boys is based on the comics by Garth Ennis, and it's a superhero story that's kind of got a dark side to it. It's a little more violent and a little more gory than a lot of other superhero stories. And I really loved it when I watched it. So when uh, I got a chance to talk to these two wonderful sound people, I was really excited about it. So first up is Wade Barnett, the supervising sound editor on The Boys. His past credits include Sound Super on Transparent, Mozart in the Jungle, Sorry for Your Loss. Wade also has a near endless list of credits as an ADR recordist and editor. Welcome to the podcast, Wade. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be talking about season one of The Boys, but season two comes out very soon. Is it right to assume that you continued your role on the new season as well? Yeah, season two is coming out um, early September now, I think. And we've actually fit, already finished, you know, the whole sound process on season two. Also joining us is David Barbie. He was the sound designer on The Boys. David's recent credits include Ballers, Blind Spot, and A Million Little Things. But David's first credits listed on IMDb are Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> and Melrose Place. You know, we're kind of laughing at that now, but those were huge shows to be your first credits. Like, how did you get on such a huge production so early? Oh, you're dating me. Um, <laughs> you know, I got lucky, which is really what it comes down to. I was working at a facility that was the TV facility, old Tadeo Glen Glen back in the day. And spelling was one of the big clients. And so when I got to start working, the first show they handed me was Melrose Place. And I, I just got to it. Cool. That's really great. My first show has been completely forgotten to time, so no one knows it. So it's interesting to have uh, such a big project be your first credit. It's a very rare thing when I interview people and look down their list. So let's talk about The Boys. Uh, as I mentioned in that intro, the inspiration for the series is the comic books. Did you guys read those books to get any kind of sound inspiration at all? Yeah, totally. Yeah, we checked them out. Um, I didn't read the whole series, but definitely to learn more about... Um you know, the superhero powers and stuff like that, just so I could, you know, communicate effectively with the showrunner um, about the direction we wanted to go with, with the design. So what was your main role on the series, Wade? Uh, interfacing with uh, the showrunner, Eric Kripke, who Eric uh, has a huge love for sound. So basically, you know, before we even started with the first turnover, we started uh, in the summer of 2019, I guess it was, going over stuff before even visual effects had really even started, you know, with just kind of drawings and stuff. And, and I would meet with Eric and then David and I would, would get together and just start spitballing stuff, creating sounds, bouncing off Eric. Um, and then after that summer, you know, we started to get the turnovers um, in for the first episode and we just built off of that. So my role is basically just trying to figure out what Eric wants and, uh, you know, figure out his ideas for each character. Um, and then after the spotting session, go back and meet with David, just kind of powwow and figure out, you know, where we want to start, you know, with the design process, which there was many layers to that design process. I imagine there would be, yeah. It was awesome. So David, comic books tend to have a lot of automatopoeia for sound effects. As the sound designer, did you take any of the pew-pews and zings as uh, inspiration? Uh, I should have. Um, no, I didn't. Um, I didn't want to go into the series with any preconceived notions. Uh, I actually was more interested in knowing what Eric's oral vision on the show was. So I, I made a point to not get into it ahead of time. I wanted to hear, you know, Eric's 
thoughts on what he was looking for for the show. And then Wade and I would bounce ideas off of one another. We'd start with the trial and error process of trying to figure out what's going to work and what isn't. How do we give each superhero their own voice and make each power unique and different? Theoretically, my client has already done all of that stuff and they've made their own decisions about what they like and what they don't. So I want to get into their head and understand them. So how many times did you go back and forth? Episode one, you're designing from scratch. How many different versions were you sending to the uh, showrunner before you got to the stage, do you think? The very beginning, before we even kind of got the first turnover, we did about three or four back and forth for each for each superhero from the first season. Um, so we had a really good head start, which, you know, on a lot of shows, you know, a lot of TV series, you don't get that, that luxury. Um, but Eric, you know, gave us that time, which was awesome. And then when we got into the series more, you know, we had more visual effects start to take shape. Um, and we could see how this was going to be and how much time these superheroes were going to be actually on camera. So how the duration of each power and how they were going to be moving and, and all that kind of thing, which, you know, obviously determines, you know, what sounds you choose. You know, after those first four, four rounds, I would say that each superhero probably had at least three, probably sometimes six or seven, you know, uh, rounds, um, which was great. You know, like I said, Eric Kripke really takes the time to sit down and, and work with us and let us know what he wants and what he doesn't, which is a lot of work, but it creates a, a great work environment because we have the correct amount of time to actually polish it, you know what I mean, which is really important. In episode one, we're introduced to all the superheroes and they're all good guys, kind of, in episode one. And as the show goes on, uh, for those that haven't seen it, I won't give out any exact details, but the show goes on. We discover that some of the superheroes aren't as uh, well-intending as we're first led to believe. Did you kind of tackle that change in the sound at all? Or were the superhero sounds the same in episode one as in episode eight? We approached it more about trying to match the emotional impact of any given moment. The powers, the base, once we kind of developed what they were, they would be modified based on what the moment needed a whole lot more than trying to make them just sound more evil in general. And that was more the approach than anything else. So I would like to talk to you about the gore in this show. There are moments where characters explode. There are moments where heads are completely crushed. So the, there is a lot of uh, bone breaking. There's a lot of blood splatter and oozing gush. You guys really knocked it out of the park because there's a lot of those things. For instance, uh, one of the head crushing, you don't see it at all. And I think it's way worse that I didn't see it. I'd almost rather see it because what you conjured in my mind with the sound design was horrible. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Mission accomplished. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what's your base elements? Where, can you just explain kind of your philosophies behind completely grossing me out? More is more, yeah? <laughs> Bigger is better. <laughs> with, with gore, I think it's it, the texture of it is definitely huge. We had the luxury on this show that it's on Amazon, right? So it's not network. We can go as big as we want. You know what I mean? A lot of these sounds probably would have been bounced back as over the top. You know what I mean? Had we been in a different platform. It was really cool to like be able to push the envelope on this show. You know, it's the typical elements you would expect. Everything from genuine bone breaks to ice to anything I could find, wood, whatever. You know, from the wetness, it could just be pasta stirring around in a bowl to actual buckets of water to whatever. As Wade said, there's no such thing as too big. So let's make it huge. So I would put in subwoofer 
I was going after it from a full spectrum point of view. And I was going after every frequency I could find, every little bit detail, little individual splatters right onto the big full buckets of Stanley Kubrick blood gushing out of the elevator. I mean, whatever you needed. So what kind of elements were you putting in the sub? I would just something to give it a little kick. I, I mean, it could just even just be a basic sub hit. I mean, the rest of the stuff needed to be more brittle, obviously, and play through in different frequencies. But, you know, like you said, talked about the head exploding. I'm just looking for something. To, <clears throat> I want to punch you a little bit when that head explodes. So I want you to feel the head in the pop. Did you record a lot of source for this or were you working mostly from library? I did do a lot of recording in a lot of places when I just couldn't find it or it was just so specific. So I spent a lot of time in my walk-in closet. Boy, I, I was able to find a lot of material just by poking around, um, digging into what I actually had, digging into other things. And then, you know, like I said, what I couldn't find, putting towels down on the floor so I don't spill on the carpet. I won't tell you where, but there's plenty of places in there where I'm just performing it with my mouth. There's lots of stuff in the show like that. And also like to give a shout out to our Foley crew because they did an awesome job with the gore. Yes. They're like the guys over at Sovereign Sound, James Howe and, and those guys. I mean, they did an awesome job delivering us really great gore material. I told them before, like ahead of time, you know, I was like, if there's anything you need to do with the Foley in this show, it's the gore. <laughs> so you've both said that you couldn't be too big with the, the gore and the violence, I guess. Is that a directive from the directors and showrunner? Yeah, like Eric Kripke, I mean, he cares so much about sound. It's really awesome to work with him. I know that I've said that already, but I can't emphasize it enough. As sound editors, we like to go as big as we can. And then a lot of times on the mixed stage, you know, they're like, oh, that's over the top. You know, we need to dial it back. And Eric, the whole way he would say, just go for it. You know what I mean? And be like, he would tell us, you know, let me ask you to pull it back. You know what I mean? He was like, go as big as you want to go, you know, push the envelope it is what the show is. You know what I mean? It's a very dark show. There aren't a lot of other shows that, you know, if any, that have some of these moments, you know, with a face exploding from, you know, the girl sitting on the guy's head. You know what I mean? Like that is a moment that is very specific to the boys and we really needed to, you know, make it shine. So in addition to uh, the gore and such, there are superhero powers that we are used to. I'm not sure if that's the right way to phrase it, but like Homelander is obviously uh, somewhat of an homage to Superman. So they both can shoot lasers out of their eyes. And we've all seen Superman. We grew up with the Superman movies in the 80s. So you're kind of locked into a bit of how that's got to sound, but you also want to make it your own. With the superhero powers, the objective was always to make it sound as organic, as naturally occurring as possible. And then you're right. We all have these preconceived notions that are very subliminal from watching everything we've watched growing up that, as you talk about, the laser out of the eyes, well, that goes back to the, the 50s Superman show. Knowing that we all had to kind of have that, that element had to be there, but obviously, yes, make it our own, do our own thing with it and make sure it feels like that his body actually can generate this. So we gotta be sure to stay away from a Transformers mechanical kind of a sound or a Matrixy mechanical kind of a sound. It always had to be very organic, very biological. So we're working with a lot of just naturally occurring sounds and playing with them what works. And so like the laser eyes, it's like, all right, let's try the sizzle of scrambled eggs in here and let's see how that goes with maybe a little electrical buzz and, trial and error, mixing and matching until we find that perfect combination. 
Which was your favorite superhero power to design? I enjoyed doing A-Train. So A-Train, for those that haven't seen the show, he can run with super speed. Yeah. So how did you tackle that? I started by playing with his name. It's like, okay, A-Train. Train. So one of the signature sounds, hesitate to give away too much. There are train elements in there. Not a lot. One of them is actually a little more prominent than others, but when you're trying to figure out how to sell that speed, I got into the headspace of, all right, let's, he's called A-Train for a reason. So let's have a little of that flavor in there. And that was fun because I kind of got to play with those kinds of elements and see what was going to work and what wasn't. And taking train horns and doing strange things with them to kind of be the signature of his arrival and departure. Wade, did you have a favorite superhero power sound? I really like Starlight's powers. I'm not really sure why, but I think hers turned out really, really cool. And it, and it's also more uh, of dynamics with her because I, I think A-Train's really cool and I love that one too, but it's just like in and out and it's very quick. But with Starlight, we had these fight scenes that we had with her that were just really cool. The different blasts and like coming in and out. I just really like, I thought that one was a lot of fun. Yeah, she has a cool kind of uh, build-up, too, before she unleashes. Yeah, each time it's, as she gets different emotions, where they're, you know, most of the time anger or panic or stress, kind of the way she gathers the energy from her surroundings, you know, we kind of wanted to use the sound as a way to tell the story of, for the people that aren't familiar with the graphic novel, what her power is, you know what I mean? And her drawing that energy in from whatever's around her, which whichever part of the episode and different story points and different scenes, you know, she's drawing it from different things. That was always really cool to play with, you know, whatever was in the room or in the environment at the time to use those sounds as a part of her buildup to harness the energy for the blasts. It was just, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. So what about the dialogue elements for the show? Was there a lot of ADR in this series? Yes, there was There was quite a bit of ADR. I would say not a ton of technical ADR. Eric doesn't like using ADR for poor audio quality. So, you know, we would do a lot of work with pulling alts for specific words and trying to save as much of the production as, as, as we could. Um, we did have a lot of ADR for story points and stuff like that. It, it was mostly ads. The loop group is insane in this show with all the crowds and like the newscasters. A lot of the newscasters are, you know, we do in group, in post, and, you know, they're used to tell a large, large portion of the story. So that was a huge uh, chunk of time and energy put into that. There, there was quite a bit of ADR, but I would say not a ton of uh, technical ADR. So how big was the group for the loop group? How many people were in it? Uh, it depended on the episode, um, and, you know, we have a lot of different episodes that require different languages. Our main base group, I think, was was eight people, right? So um, we just finished season two, so I'm trying to remember back to season one, but, you know, we've had Arabic, Hebrew, different Asian languages. God, there's been so many. And whenever one of those episodes would come, you, we, we would have to bring in, like, almost a whole secondary group to do that stuff. The Loop Crew sessions were a ton of fun in this show. So what about ambiences? Because the show does take place in a lot of different places. Large portions of the show involve kind of a dank hideout in a basement where you have to kind of convey that they're in a bad neighborhood, but the windows are all kind of closed and they're locked in there. How did you go about building the surroundings? I built it like they're outside. I mean, that was just, you know, what would we hear if those windows were really thin? and we can really hear outside and let's just go for it and throw all this stuff in there. And then I got to give it up to the mixer, Rich Weingart, who just did a fabulous job of weaving that stuff together, hitting the right sweet spot, 
knowing exactly where to go with it. I mean, I'd pre-mix it, but obviously I'm not hearing everything together. So I'm, all I'm trying to do is get rich in the neighborhood. And then he's dialing it and, and putting it together. Um, and the other time thing I'll do is I use speakerphone quite a bit. I, I love that plugin. And so I will try to pre-process a lot of things so that they already have the natural decaying reverb of, you know, two street, two blocks down or whatever. I want to save Rich five minutes if I can. So if it's five minutes here, five minutes there, I, I'll take that because I know what we're up against and what kind of time constraints they're on. So I'm gonna do that quite a bit too. You're right, and in some of those locations, the off-screen world was really, really key. You mentioned time constraints. This series is basically like eight little movies. Like it doesn't look like your average broadcast TV show. Like it's got a lot of production value, a lot of special effects in it. Mixing these couldn't have been, uh, you know, all faders up and go. What was the schedule for this? Like how much edit time did you get per episode? How many days on the mix stage? <laughs> it grew and grew. <laughs> Gosh, it, I, I feel like... We, we have a lot, a lot more time now than when we started, let's put it that way. Um, but the producers on the show have been very uh, gr like generous. Um, I feel like we had three days to start on the mix stage, but that increased very quickly. Depending on the runtime, depending on the nature of the show, the producers were very generous in saying, you know, this, this episode is very visual effects heavy. It's very effects heavy. You're going to get five days on the stage. And if we needed more time, we would, we would do some overtime. Um, it's not like some clients you have that are very strict and just, you know, you need to get out of the door. The, the people on the show really cared about the sound and they gave us the, the time that we needed, which was awesome. You hit it on the head for me when you say that this was kind of like eight movies, except to me, it was actually more like one eight to nine hour movie. Uh, the way it would end up happening is that, you know, we'd theoretically be quote-unquote done with episodes one, two, or three, but we weren't really because sometimes stuff would happen later on and we'd go, oh, hey, look, that person's superpower also does this. Well, okay, we're, now we're going to jump back and be sure that we're updated in previous episodes. My organizational skills have increased exponentially as a result of this project because being able to keep track of where all the bodies are buried became very important to under, be able to track everything, know where it all goes. So when you ask me about time, I don't know, and I don't think I want to know. It was a lot. We worked hard. We did a lot, and um, I'm really happy with the result. I would love to give a shout out to our re-recording mixers. You know, uh, David already mentioned Rich Weingart, but um, also our dialogue and music mixer, Alex Fairman. We were a total team on this show, you know what I mean? And in certain instances, they really helped us out, you know, not only with balancing levels, but, you know, if I was cutting a fix on the stage and it was later in the day and I was busy, you know, updating one sound, Rich might be over there trying different things that might be considered editorial on the board. Alex was sliding stuff around, you know, and like loop group to just get the, you know, the crowds to play perfectly. So I, I would just love to give them a shout out because they are really should be included a part of, in part of the, you know, editorial team, because in certain moments on the stage, you know, they, they really just had to step up and they did, you know, so that was a huge part of, of this whole process. It sounds fantastic. I was a really big fan of the show and I can't wait for season two to come out. I'm going to be, uh, streaming that all night. I'm going to miss a whole night of sleep probably when that comes out. So uh, thank you in advance for that. We'll send coffee your way. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks so much for having us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. 
Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 